You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 61, Monasticism. This is part three in the series on the Dark Ages of Church History. And in the first two episodes, we talked a lot about the imperial church as Christianity became illegal and then became the official state religion, there were some major shifts in religion. Uh, The persecuted church was very different from uh, the state church, the official religion of the Roman Empire, and that brought all kinds of changes, many of them not so good, many of them involving corruption. And if it were not for this third subject that I'm talking about today, monasticism, the monks, things like in-depth study, devotion to God, sacrifice, prayer, um, theology on suffering and service, discipline, strong religious zeal, these things may have all but disappeared during the Middle Ages if it weren't for this movement of monasticism. When a lot of us look at monks today, we wonder where in the world did this concept come from? We don't see monasticism in the New Testament. We see, you know, calls to service and sacrifice and even some guarantees that if you follow Christ, you you will bear a cross, you will have to suffer. But a fully formed monasticism is, there's not even a distant cousin to it, in the New Testament. So we have to ask ourselves, where did this come from? And like any other movement, there are several origins to monasticism. And I can only guess at which ones are accurate and which ones, you know, may not have anything to do with it. I, to me, it seems like several things came together to form this movement. And uh, one of them, for example, would be the Jewish sect called the Essenes. In the New Testament, you read about the Sadducees and you read about the Pharisees, but there was another sect going on outside the environs of Jerusalem and even Galilee, out into the wilderness, called the Essenes. Uh, This is the group associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the reason the Dead Sea Scrolls lay undiscovered for so long is because they were copied by these Jewish Essenes, a society that lived out away from everyone else, hidden in the caves. And that could be an early origin of monasticism. In the Greek philosophical world, there were other contributors. Uh, Plato, for example, who taught a dualism, of matter and spirit. Uh, Plato believed that the ideal was spiritual and that all matter is corrupt and uh, not the true form of things, and that lent to a dualism of body and soul that the the, the monks believed in. And then also there were the Cynic philosophers among the Greeks who renounced the world And they preach things like, man should reduce his personal needs to a minimum. They even wore cloaks and uh, hoods like we associate with the monks today. Maybe that's where the monks got their garb. We don't know for sure. Also in the Bible, there are references to an early asceticism, self-harm, that Paul and other apostles were, were fighting in their letters 
And one example that I can share with you comes from the end of Colossians chapter 2, where Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And then giving some examples of these regulations, in my translation, this is in uh, quotation marks, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This evidently was what some people were preaching in the name of religion. He says, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These things that he calls human precepts and teachings, he says they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul was referring to something that sounded very similar to monasticism very early in the letter to the Colossians. So, Christians were already thinking that the more I suffer, the godlier I am. The more harm I bring to myself, my body, the better person that I am. These were very early concepts. Uh, In Persia, we have to mention a religious teacher named Mani, M-A-N-I. He was crucified in 276, and Mani taught that the world was the result of a conflict of two powers. He taught this dualism also. In other words, not one God, but two gods. One good, one evil. And the evil God is the one who made the world. So all things of the world, insofar as we can keep from them, we should shun. That was the teaching of uh, Manny. And we bring that up because... A very influential monk named Augustine was Manichaean. He followed Manny before he became a Christian. And so that has to have some influence as well. And then on top of all of these things, I think we have to put the shift that came with the transition of the persecuted church into the imperial church. That also led to the rise of monasticism. Because what happened is... You had martyrs in the early church, and those were the heroes that people looked up to. Those were the people who said, this is how far I will go for the truth about Jesus Christ. And making Christianity legal put an end to martyrdom, which is a good thing, but the people no longer had heroes among the martyrs. They looked now to the monks that replaced the martyrs as the heroes of the church. So those are just some thoughts on what led to the rise of monasticism and this idea of living a minimal lifestyle, living out away from society, even doing harm to oneself in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, monasticism did not come fully formed. It evolved like all things do. And the first form of it wasn't what you normally think of when you think of a monk. Uh, Nowadays, when we think of a monk, we we think of somebody who lives in a communal lifestyle, who follows a strict set of rules that have been passed down from generation to generation according to this order or that order. That's not how it began, but it began in isolation, and the first form of monasticism really was the lonely desert hermit. The word hermit comes from the Greek word for desert because 
the monastic flight from the world began in Egypt where you didn't have to go very far to the east or to the west until you got into desert wastelands. And so uh, the first monks really started in Egypt and you can trace all monks really back to a man named Anthony, born about 250 in a little village in Egypt. He was influenced by the words of Christ to the rich young ruler. You remember the story. The ruler came to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Follow the commandments. And uh, the rich young ruler said, This is what I've done from childhood up. And Jesus said, There's one thing that you lack. Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Well, most of us interpret that to mean that Jesus could see a weakness in the rich young ruler and that he wouldn't give this instruction necessarily to everybody, but he had to give it to this particular young man because he had a problem with possessions. He was, he was idolizing his possessions and making them God instead of the true God who could give him purpose in his life. And so Jesus had to give him that instruction, which caused the man to go away sorrowful because he was so attached to his possessions. But Anthony, when he read that, he thought this applies to everybody. This is the calling that Christ has called everyone to. And so when he got to be 20 years of age, he gave away all of his wealth and took up the life of solitude in a cave. And we know about Anthony because of a character that we've already discussed in the last episode, a man named Athanasius. Among Athanasius's many accomplishments was a biography of Anthony. And he wrote all of these legends, and it was very popular and caused many people to follow in Anthony's footsteps. Uh, Athanasius writes about Anthony's battles with temptations, and they're very graphic. Uh, they come in the form of devils and demons, uh, beasts, wild animals, even women. And yet, in spite of his harsh lifestyle, the way Athanasius told it, he lived a full life uh, to be the age of 105 years old. So soon, many people were picking up this book by Athanasius, reading about Anthony, and also seeing corruption in the church and running out into the wilderness to live as a hermit. And they weren't so much running from the world as they were running from the world that was in the church. It wasn't that they thought they needed to get away from the world. The church had become so corrupt that they felt they had to get away from the church. Now, there were some other interesting hermits that were in early uh, that were a part of an early form of monasticism. Another one I want to bring up as an example is a 5th century Syrian monk named Simeon Stiletus. And the thing that was interesting about Simeon is that he lived at the top of a 60-foot pillar for 37 years. Now, there are different versions of how he did this. Some say that he lived on one pillar, and then he lived on a higher pillar, and then a higher pillar. But to simplify it, this guy lived on the top of a pillar that was about four foot wide at the top for 37 years. That's why they call him Stiletus, 
that word has something to do with pillars. And many people sought to emulate Simeon. In fact, uh, there became these pillar monks, as they were called, thousands of them, uh, existing between the 5th and even up to the 12th centuries, thinking that they were more devoted to God by getting so far away from society, land wasn't enough to put distance between themselves and other people in the church and outside the church. They had to go up vertical into the air to get even further away from people. And uh, that was Simeon. He started that. So monks were doing all kinds of things in isolation to show their pure devotion to God. Uh, Some were refusing to wear necessary clothing. Some were going without any clothing at all. Some devised coarse, uncomfortable clothing when they lived in climates in which they just couldn't survive without clothing. Um, Others weighed themselves down with chains. Some refused to eat anything but grass. Uh, Others engaged in extreme fasting for 20 days at a time. Uh, Many of them did not live very long because of what they were doing to their bodies, but they believed that their suffering showed that they were more devoted to God than others. And it was it drew a, a sharp contrast between the way that they were living and the life in the imperial church. Now, in about 320, early 4th century, the monastic movement took a significant step forward when a former soldier named Pacomius instituted the first monastery. This is getting us closer to what we normally think of as monasticism. Now, this Pacomius guy was a pretty interesting character. He'd been a soldier in Constantine's army, and he was profoundly moved when he saw Christians bringing food to his fellow soldiers uh, who had been afflicted with famine and disease. And so he decided that when he got out of military service that he would live as a Christian as well. But he had a problem with the hermits in the desert because living in isolation, they weren't united, of course. Uh, they, They weren't living in fellowship with one another, and they also lived very differently and were forming very different ideas from one another. And Pacomius believed that instead of living individually or even in groups of hermits, each to a law to himself, Monks needed to have a regulated common life in which they ate and labored and worshipped together. And so, as a soldier would, he dictated strict hours. He had a very disciplined schedule, a disciplined lifestyle, and also, as soldiers live, the monks would live together. And Pacomius was the man who started this form of monasticism. Uh, The name for this is Conobitic monasticism. It's from the Greek word for common, which is koinos, and the Greek word for life, which is bios. So it's konobitic monasticism. But communal life is more familiar to us, and that's probably how I will refer to it in the rest of the episode. Uh, So Pacomius was one early uh, pioneer to the monastery. Another early pioneer was Basil of Caesarea. We've talked about Basil before. He was one of the three Cappadocians, along with Gregory of Nicaea, uh, Nyssa, sorry, 
and uh, uh, Gregory of Nan Nazianzus. Man, I have such a hard time with, with that Gregory name. But uh, the two Gregories and Basil. Now, Basil was the pioneer to the monastery. Uh, Basil, who died in 379, he designed the rule of discipline under which the monasticism of Greek Orthodoxy is organized to this day. So he was very important to the strain of monasticism that you find in the Orthodox tradition even today. Just like with regard to some of the doctrines we discussed regarding Christ in the last episode, monastic life began to develop along two strains, one from the West represented by Rome and Alexandria, and the other in the East represented by Constantinople and Antioch. So Basil was a part of the Eastern strain. Uh, the aim of all monks, however, was full commitment to God and the self-denying imitation of Christ. And in order to reach that goal, they took a threefold vow, basically to uh, a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And it became very influential. In fact, in the 5th and 6th centuries, most of the important church leaders were monks, or at least closely linked to monasticism. So, it's, some, it's, a, it's a movement we have to talk about if we're discussing the Middle Ages. You just can't discuss the medieval church without talking about monks. So, I want to go over a few other notable monks. We've already talked about several, most of them up to the point of the monasteries. But now I'm going to talk about them, uh, some of the important ones, particularly in the West, that were a part of that communal lifestyle in the monastery. And uh, the first one I want to talk about is Jerome. Jerome's dates are 340 to 420. He began as a hermit in the Syrian desert, but he found that the only way he could fight sexual temptation was by occupying his mind with tough intellectual discipline. I found that a lot of these monks struggled with sexual temptation, which I guess is not all that unusual, but one of the things that drove them out into the wilderness was women, and that was a real problem for Jerome. So he found that the thing that could get his mind off of women was a study of uh, the Word of God, and in, particularly, in, in particular, the languages in which the Word was originally written, Hebrew and Greek. He was one of the first Christians to learn Hebrew, and he was so effective at it that he was able to translate the Bible into Latin from its original languages in Hebrew with regard to the Old Testament and Greek with regard to the New Testament. I mentioned Jerome because, for other reasons, he was very influential in that he basically wrote the Bible of the Middle Ages. It's called the Vulgate, which is an unfortunate name for it now because when we hear Vulgate, we think vulgar, which is a word that conjures up thoughts of things that are profane and gross and wrong and sinful, but Vulgate in those days had to do with the common tongue, and the common tongue in the West was Latin. So he made the first major translation into Latin and the Bible of the common man who couldn't read from Greek or Hebrew. 
So he was very important, and that was the Bible, not just in the Middle Ages for the Roman Catholic Church, but they used it exclusively up until modern times. He was very influential. And then after him, we also need to mention Benedict of Nursia. Uh, Benedict lived from 480 to 547, 5th and 6th centuries, and he was a part of the West, the communal life of the West. You could say its greatest influence. He, like um, Jerome, started out as a hermit in a cave, but the monks of a neighboring monastery came out and asked him to be their abbot. Now, abbot is the name for the father or the leader of a monastery. He had never lived in a monastery before, and so when he started, he started out as the leader, the abbot. Years later, he founded the monastery at Mont Cassino, 85 miles southeast of Rome, and that's where he wrote his famous rule, the order that was characterized by moderation, good judgment, and a combination of restraint with some degree of freedom. He required the monastery to be self-contained, furnishing all the necessities of life, and so the monks who lived there never really needed to go outside the four walls of the monastery for their needs. They wove their own cloth, they grew their own crops, they were carpenters and masons, they knew how to do everything that needed to be done. Benedict had a strict daily schedule that involved six hours a day in labor, four hours for prayer and worship, eight hours for sleep, and the rest of the time they could spend in writing, teaching, or study. Now, you look at that and you think, well, four hours for prayer and worship, that's not very much, but he had at least seven services a day, so the prayer time didn't have to be very long, but it was frequent. And they even had the nighttime vigil at 2 a.m. Where, where they would rise in the middle of the night to do prayer and worship. Uh, Benedict was the guy who said idle hands are the devil's workshop, and he believed in the importance of manual labor and study. You've heard of Benedictine monks. These are the monks that follow um, Benedict. And most of us, when we think of a monk, we think of a monk in the style of Benedict. So you have to talk about him if you're talking about monasticism. Another one that we have to mention that came several hundred years after Benedict was Bernard of Clairvaux. His dates are 1090 to 1153. And we'll talk about Bernard even more later on when we get to the Crusades because he was a very influential preacher of the Crusades. And then there, there are the mendicant monks. Mendicants are begging monks. Uh, another word for them is friar, uh, like Friar Tuck and Robin Hood. Friars were the monks who didn't live in the communes, the monasteries, but outside they didn't withdraw from society, though, like the hermits. They lived among the people. And because they didn't live in the safety of the monastery, growing their own crops and providing for themselves, they had to rely upon the charity of others. And so they would beg to get their next meal. And uh, two of these that we'll mention as examples of the mendicants or the friars were Francis of Assisi and Dominic. Now, Francis... Uh, he lived according to Matthew chapter 10. He, 
he saw that as a guideline for his life, even though it was part of the limited commission for the disciples of Jesus only. Uh, Francis, he took that as a way that he should live. And you remember that's where Jesus gives the disciples instructions not to carry anything with them, but to rely on the charity of the houses that they visit. And if somebody doesn't receive them into their house, shake the dust off their feet and go on down to the next one. Uh, That's how Francis lived his life. And he was said to have this feeling of oneness with nature as well and, and a special relationship with animals. So if you Google Francis and you look at some depictions of him in his life, you'll see a lot of pictures of a guy of a guy preaching to birds. Uh, that's because it was said that he could preach to the birds. Also, another thing about Francis is he supposedly manifested the stigmata, the appearance of the wounds of Christ on his flesh, in his hands and in his feet. Uh, that was said to come about due to prolonged and concentrated meditation on the death of Christ. You may have heard of the followers of his order. They're called Franciscan monks. Uh, Dominic is another mendicant. He was from Spain. You've probably heard of Dominican monks. Uh, One last that I'll mention who's really after the period of monasticism, after this movement had waned, way into the Reformation era is Ignatius Loyola. And I mention him because he established the order of the Jesuits. And the Jesuits were militarized monks, and they were really a part of the counter-reformation of the 16th century. But because you might get confused, as I do, about the different orders, and you wonder where the Jesuits fit into, and they were followers of this Ignatius Loyola, and uh, much later than the time period we're talking about in this series of episodes on the Dark Ages. So it's impossible to exaggerate the service the monks rendered in the period after the decline of the Roman Empire and uh, the growth in its place of of the nations that came down from the Germanic conquerors. Uh, The Benedictine monasteries filled the European countryside, and they were a place during the Middle Ages where the church could study and find protection amid constant warfare. Uh, They were a great missionary force, and they were a reminder that the soul was more important than the body. But there were problems. The monasteries were not without their faults. For one thing, while they took the vow of poverty, the individual monks were very poor, but the monasteries themselves, if you looked at them as a group, became very wealthy as they were the recipients of many gifts, especially land. And um, you had that. Not only that, but monasticism called for an unnatural lifestyle. It's really not the way that God wants us to live. And because it's asking us to live in a very unnatural way, very few people could live the life that they were called to live. And so there was a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of reaction to the corruption through the foundation of new orders all the time. Still, no one knows what would have happened to the church and Christianity without the monks. They made a huge impact, especially during the Middle Ages. 
Uh, one author that I researched quite a bit on this subject is Everett Ferguson, and he made this interesting argument that each significant crisis in the medieval church produced a new monastic order influential in saving the Catholic Church of the time. So, in other words, you can trace the progression or the changes in the church through the Middle Ages almost by marking the new monastic orders that rose from time to time to time. They were hugely influential. And as we continue this study of the history of the church in the Middle Ages, we will refer back, I assure you, to many important monks who made their impact. That will be true in the next episode, but you'll have to wait till then to find out about him on Wide Margins.